The KSTE Farm Hour, brought to you in part by Mavinto Insecticide from Bayer. Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. The single biggest agricultural commodity in California, it's dairy, which produces more than $6 billion in revenue a year. But dairy farmers in the Golden State are weathering a big storm. About 230 dairy operations in California have closed during the last five years. And not helping the survival of the others, the uncertainty of the tariff wars with Mexico and Canada. But one lifeline thrown to California's dairy farmers recently is their new participation in the federal milk marketing order. We have the details. The U.S. Senate has passed its version of the Farm Bill. It contains some promising news for potential hemp growers. What's wrong with the sunflowers growing in Yolo, Sutter, and Solano counties? We delve into the mysteries of the abiotic disorders of the local sunflower crops. A University of California expert has the details. All that, crop reports, and a lot more on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. California's milk industry will soon be converting from a state milk marketing order system to the federal system. Gary Crawford has the details. The process officially started back in February 2014. I'm now going to sign this farm bill. With the president's signature, the farm bill became law. In that law was a provision that would allow California dairy producers to petition the U.S. Department of Agriculture to allow them to leave California's state-run milk marketing order system and come under the federal order system. Milk marketing orders regulate, of course, the sale of milk between dairy farmers and the first buyers of that milk. California producers did petition USDA and the USDA started that long process. And in the fall, finally, of 2015, 15, USDA held eight weeks of hearings on the subject, and at that time, Dana Cole, who helps run dairy programs for the USDA's Ag Marketing Service, told us that was just the, the beginning. Adding minimum, we're looking at over two years before something could come to fruition. And she was right. Two years and ten months from the time of the hearings, but it did come to fruition or almost anyway, California dairy producers do know for sure now that starting in November, they will be going out of California's milk marketing order system and under the federal system. USDA just the other day announcing the results of a producer referendum approving the move. And then we talked to Dana Cole again when the voting results came in. She told us that California producers had originally requested this change because they felt the California state system was giving them prices lower than producers in other areas who were under a federal system. And what we see is that there will be an overall increase in prices paid to dairy farmers in California. And therefore, it puts California producers on equal footing with other parts of the country. Now, we talked about the long process of getting all this done. Actually, it's not quite done. It won't be totally ready to go for a few more months. The California Federal Milk Marketing Order will be implemented on October 17 with the announcement of the Advanced Class 1 prices. These prices will then be used on November 1 when we actually begin the regulation of the the processors. So that will finally close the books on a process that took over four years to complete. But this move is a big deal nationally because... California represents uh, nearly 20% of all U.S. milk production. And so this fall, 80% of this country's milk will be under federal milk marketing orders. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, 
Washington. One aspect of the state system that California dairy people will get to keep is the quota system. Dana Cole is the deputy administrator of dairy programs for the USDA's Agricultural Marketing Service. She says California's dairy farmers will get to keep their state quotas under the federal milk marketing order system. The unique thing that this order does that was approved by producers and will be implemented in November is that it implements a federal order that is very similar to all federal orders. And then it allows the state to continue the operations of their quota program, just as they currently maintain within the California state order. The California dairy producers value the quota program that they have. And this quota program is worth a significant amount of money to the dairy producers who own quota within the state of California. So it was imperative if they changed from a state order to a federal order that they be allowed to carry forward the quota program so that they can maintain that asset on their balance sheet. But will joining the federal milk marketing order system be enough to save the California dairy industry? California's dairy industry is huge. Dairy remains the king of California agriculture, just ahead of grapes, with more than $6 billion in revenue in 2016. But prices peaked in 2014 and then started dropping about 40% a year later, in part because of declining sales to markets such as China and Russia. And contentious negotiations with Mexico and Canada over the future of NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, is another hit to the California dairy industry. Mexico's tariffs hit producers at a vulnerable spot. About 43% of California dairy production is turned into cheese. An estimated one-third of that cheese gets exported, with much of it going to Mexico. And cheese is a target of Mexico's new tariffs. Here in California, dairy producers' revenue plunged by more than one-third. Dairy farming in general in California has turned unprofitable, that according to a report in the Sacramento Bee. A dozen California-based companies are among those exploring agricultural export opportunities in Japan this week. The U.S. Department of Agriculture organized the trade mission, which also includes representatives of state agriculture departments. Japan represents the fourth-largest market for California's farm exports. California companies participating in the trade mission sell rice, nuts, fruit drinks, dairy foods, prunes, and other products. With more information about the trade mission, here's the USDA's Gary Crawford. The Agriculture Department's Undersecretary for Trade says he doesn't know what the next steps will be for economic and trade discussions with Japan. I do know that the U.S. and I think, frankly, Japan as well, want very much to get into some trade discussions. Ted McKinney is in Japan this week leading a U.S. trade mission, a group representing U.S. food and ag businesses and others, and he told reporters it seems the U.S. prefers one-on-one negotiations. Japan would prefer the U.S. rejoin the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Meanwhile, there is talk of tariffs and other possible trade disruptions, but as to that affecting the trade mission folks? The group is remarkably upbeat. They, they are realistic. They know that there are tariffs. There might be more coming, but they, they recognize the importance of this market 
And it was one of, you know, we'll roll with whatever we've got. McKinney said trade mission participants are telling him it's worth going on the mission to build new sales and trade opportunities for the future. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. A historic vote on the Delta Tunnels project is getting a do-over. Southern California's powerful water agency, the Metropolitan Water District, said its board will vote again in July on whether to pay for the lion's share of the project, known officially as California Water Fix, also known as the Delta Tunnels Project. The Sacramento Bee reports that the announcement came after environmentalists and an open government group complained that Metropolitan's directors violated the Brown Act before voting in April to support the tunnels. The Brown Act sets rules intended to prevent government boards from making decisions behind closed doors. Metropolitan denied violating the law but said it's calling for the new vote to ensure that there's no question concerning the validity of the agency's decision to help pay for the Delta Tunnels project. But more than likely, that redo will probably be an even bigger vote in favor of paying for the project. The vote is set for July 10th. It's likely to produce the similar results as the previous vote. The board's vote in April was 61% in favor of the project. And since then, support within Metropolitan's ranks appears to have grown. Opposition to the Delta Tunnels project remains firm. Barbara Berrigan Padilla, she heads up the group Restore the Delta. She says the MWD may have problems if it opens up its checkbook to any more water districts to bring them into this project. Metropolitan Water District voted not only to pay for two thirds of the project, but they left themselves an open check for their general manager to negotiate other deals to build the project on behalf of water districts that you know aren't part of their membership aren't aren't part of the MWD consequently there will be definite efforts by ratepayers to put a stop to this uh, there are real considerations in terms of california laws agencies just can't build projects on behalf of other agencies here's this week's california crop report wheat oats and barley hay were being harvested As wheat for silage harvest nears completion, growers began replanting the fields with summer beans, silage corn, sedan grass, and silage sorghum. Cultivation of these summer crops continue for weed control. Wheat harvest for grain began, and the byproduct wheat straw was being baled for livestock. Cotton was irrigated and cultivated. Alfalfa was irrigated, cut, and baled. Alfalfa drying conditions were ideal with the current warm, dry weather. Rice planting was complete with fields in various stages of growth. Sunflower and safflower fields have emerged. Grapes are developing well. Stone fruit orchards are being irrigated and fertilized. New orchards were being planted. Some orchard floors were lined with reflective plastic to aid in fruit color. Summer pruning of stone fruit has begun. Peaches, nectarines, plums, and apricots are being harvested. Cherry harvest is winding down for the season. Valencia orange harvest is ongoing. Some citrus trees were being planted as older trees were being trimmed and skirted. Almonds, pistachios, and walnuts are being irrigated. Pesticides and fungicides were applied to some almond groves. Weed control continues. In Tulare County, summer vegetables are being planted as temperatures warmed. Strawberry harvest is nearing completion. In Monterey County, the weather was windy and cloudy, which causes some issues with lettuce, such as tip burn. The second harvest of lettuce was underway, and the third planting began in other areas already harvested. Melons and sweet corn were harvested in Imperial County. 
Rangeland and non-irrigated pasture was primarily in fair condition. Some cattle were moved to higher elevation ranges. Sheep grazed on retired cropland. In Tulare County, grasses were more abundant in higher elevations. Take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator, such as iTunes. The eyes are 20 and the nose are one. The bill is ordered reported favorably to Senate as amended. Senate Ag Committee Chairman Pat Roberts with the farm bill vote by the committee, the one dissenting vote from Iowa's Chuck Grassley. Nonetheless, the bill's out of committee. When will the Senate debate the bill? We'll turn to the farm bill before the 4th of July. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. I'm hopeful that the House will get to theirs. They probably look a little different from ours, but I'm hoping they'll get to theirs shortly, which will give us a chance to get into conference and actually make a law here, which is what I know we're all intensely interested in doing. Or as Pat Roberts put it quite intensely, with continued low farm commodity prices, uncertainties about trade, producers and their lenders need two things right now. Certainty and predictability especially during these very difficult times. This is absolutely paramount to any other concern. That's one reason the Senate bill does not have the controversial changes to the nutrition assistance programs which helped bring down the House bill back in mid-May. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. Besides no stricter work requirements for the SNAP program, formerly known as the Food Stamp Program, the Farm Bill passed by the Senate would reauthorize the Farm and Ranch Stress Assistance Network. It's a mental health resource program that was established in the 2008 Farm Bill, but it was never funded. It allocates $10 million in funding through 2023 and requires the USDA to submit a report to Congress on the state of behavior and mental health in farming communities. The Senate Farm Bill also has something for organic growers. The bill mandates funding for two organics programs, the Organic Certification Cost Share Program and the Organic Agriculture Research and Extension Initiative. Also, the Senate bill, if passed, would modernize the Food for Peace Program, which provides nutritional assistance around the world. And Kentucky Senator Mitch McConnell got what he wanted, legalization of hemp. The Senate's proposal would legalize hemp as an agricultural product and make the plant eligible for crop insurance. The U.S. is the only major industrialized country that bans hemp production. The U.S. is the only major industrialized country that bans hemp production, and supporters say legalization could create a lucrative new market opportunity for the country's agricultural communities. A lot of farmers are talking about the potential for hemp if and when it becomes legalized for growing in large quantities here in California. One popular conversation among farmers is the price that a certain hemp product can bring in. It's called CBD oil. It has a wide variety of uses, and it can bring in as much as $90,000 an acre. Matt Weiser of Water Deeply has researched the subject of hemp and has discovered that there's a lot of products that can be grown from hemp. Over 25,000 products made of hemp. Presumably down the road, we'll get to a point where the market for CBD oil is saturated and probably prices will come down. But by that point, these other markets for hemp, fiber, and building products will emerge, presumably, and create new markets for hemp. We all know that back in the day, a lot of rope and heavy cloth used to be made from hemp. Um, But these days, you can also use the, the hemp fibers basically the waste material from harvesting other products using hemp 
can be turned into building materials like construction blocks or panels that can be made to build houses and, and commercial buildings. Today, CBD oil is widely recognized as an effective therapeutic treatment for many health problems from basic muscle and joint strain to epilepsy and concussions. It's been a pest in urban areas of California for more than a decade, and the brown marmorated stink bug has started to move into agricultural zones. University of California pest management experts say the stink bug began causing damage in orchards and vineyards last year, and more impact has been seen this year. The bugs feed on a variety of plants. The brown marmorated stink bug has become established in 16 counties, and it's been trapped in 18 more California counties. Considered one of the nation's top biological pests, the brown marmorea stink bug is not native to the U.S. and has no natural enemies in this country. USDA researcher Elijah Talama says that is important to note in regards to control of this pest because... One of the reasons that we essentially have to use natural enemies for this stink bug is that it feeds on plant tissues with proboscis, essentially. So it's sucking out juices from the interior of the plant. And this means that when you spray pesticides on the surface of the plant, it bypasses those pesticides and feeds on the interior tissues. The pesticides are not effective. Which is why Talabas, colleagues at USDA's Agricultural Research Service, and others across the country are looking at bringing in beneficial insects from the stink bug's home continent of Asia to see if it would help control this pest without becoming a pest itself. Kim Homer at the Beneficial Insect Introduction Lab in Newark, Delaware, did an exploratory project in East Asia, Korea, Japan, and China, collecting egg masses from the stink bug and finding what comes out of them. And the most effective killer is a parasitic wasp called Trisulcus japonicus. And this wasp lays its egg inside of a stink bug egg, consumes the contents, and then the adult wasp emerges from the stink bug's egg. This species of wasp is very small in size, about one to two millimeters long. But based on high-resolution digital photography that has studied the impacts of these wasps on brown marmorated stink bug eggs, their ability to control this pest could be substantial. The process of selecting the biocontrol agent happens in a quarantine facility. That's the laboratory in Delaware. The research is designed to find a wasp that kills the brown marmorated stink bug eggs and doesn't kill anything else. Once that process occurs, they submit an application to APHIS. APHIS gives, hopefully, permission to release this wasp, and then there will be releases in breeding facilities, hopefully throughout the United States. And the hope is that the specific species of Trisulcus wasp and other potential beneficial insects studied right now will soon have the approval as control agents against brown marmorated stink bug. In economic terms alone, the stink bug is estimated to have caused $37 million in damages in 2010 to such crops as corn, soybeans, and grapes. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Sacramento County Farm Advisor Chuck Engels has been hot on the trail of the brown marmorated stink bug since it arrived here in Sacramento County. He talks about the damage that pests can do to locally grown crops. They have piercing, sucking mouthparts, so they penetrate right through a husk or skin. They'll even grow through, uh, go through hazelnuts up in Oregon, go right through the mat. And imagine that, a hard shell. So they're definitely concerned about almonds uh, and pistachios. 
but then they so they they feed on the they, they have an enzyme that they release through their proboscis into the fruit and that breaks down the fruit or the shell of a nut and then they suck the contents out so they're they're feeding for quite some time and then when they leave it leaves a pockmark uh, sometimes if it's a young fruit then as the fruit grows it'll be indented and unsaleable completely unsaleable and then the fruit will just turn to mush over time brown marmorated stink bug where is it overwintering if it's in an orchard it overwinters can overwinter in trees a lot of times around here it's overwintering in homes barns anywhere it can find some sort of shelter and it survives the cold in the in the east on the east coast so it survives the cold just fine here are there any secondary diseases that can vector no. Uh, fortunately, this is one insect with piercing, sucking mouth parts that does not seem to vector a disease. Uh, well, one thing that is happening, there's a, a parasitoid wasp, a tiny wasp, that is found in China, um, other Asian countries, where this thing is native to. And so it's been brought over here and it's in quarantine to try to um, see if it feeds on other insects, and it does, but it prefers brown marmorated stink bug. But in the meantime, they've shown up in the East Coast and in Oregon and Washington in the wild. And these are genetically different from the ones that are in the quarantine. So somebody not only brought the stink bugs, but then later somebody actually has brought over, accidentally, I'm sure, the uh, parasitoid, but they're not in California yet. Well, that uh, conundrum for farmers and, if, uh, and growers, if, if they want to do things organically, what can they do? Basically, clean up, winter clean up? The organic farmers are going to have the hardest time with this because it takes some pretty harsh chemicals in order insecticides to really kill it. And it is hard to kill even with some of the best insecticides. So as far as what's registered for use on it, would it be a matter of ro rotating through the, the various classes? Uh, well, we know of some of the products that are the best that are recommended back east and in Oregon and Washington. Um, we haven't experimented with them here because we haven't had them as a problem on farms. So, but we have a pretty good idea. Some of the neonicotinoids and uh, pyrethroids, some of the, the, the typical players that would, would control a, a bug, a, a stink bug. So probably the first thing farmers will notice might be a heavy infestation of the brown marmorated stink bug in their outbuildings. Right, and on screens. So the best time to look for them is about August and September because they start aggregating, they start showing up on screen doors, uh, people start seeing them in their homes. Uh, so that's the best time when the population is the highest. If you have sunflowers growing, sunflower is a major, major attraction of them, and it's easy to see them on it. So if you plant sunflowers this time of year, it's great. You can monitor for them yourself and let me know if you find them in areas that they're not already there. If you are growing here in Sacramento County. Yes, and we have a map uh, on our website that has a, a red dot where they've all been found and a red circle where they've, they've become established and they're permanent then. Speaking of online, there's a lot of great information online University of California provides about the brown marmorated stink bug, ipm.ucdavis.edu. Yes, exactly. That's where you find a lot of it. And on my website, uh, see, uh, Cooperative Extension Sacramento. I might also say that organic farmers do have some products that they can use. Spinosad, for one, and uh, uh, Sabadella. Uh, uh, yeah, Sabadella. But there's a few others. It's just that they mainly work on nymphs and don't touch the adults. Mm, okay, so, so early would be the best timing. 
I like the idea of sunflowers as a trap crop. Exactly. Yeah, it works. All right. Chuck Engel, Sacramento County Farm Advisor. Thanks for a few minutes of your time. You're welcome. Thank you. California Department of Food and Agriculture, along with the USDA, are continuing their joint project to eradicate a recent outbreak of virulent Newcastle disease in Southern California. Detections have occurred at a small number of properties in Los Angeles and San Bernardino counties. The project includes extensive outreach to bird owners and feed stores with tips on signs of the disease. And they've released this public service announcement narrated by Gabriela Zaragoza. The virulent Newcastle disease has been diagnosed in Southern California. This disease does not affect humans, but it can kill birds in just a matter of days. The birds become infected by coming in contact with other birds carrying the disease or by humans carrying the disease in their clothing or shoes. Don't move your birds. If you have birds that appear to be ill, please call the State Bird Hotline at 1-866-922-2473. Spring and summer are fair seasons here in California. That means that 4-H'ers and FFA'ers will be having their backyard exhibition chickens on display. And with virulent Newcastle disease having been found with backyard exhibition chickens in Southern California in Los Angeles County, it's very important for chicken exhibitors to isolate their show chickens when they return home. But what exactly do we mean by isolation? Cherie Sintas Glover is a UC certified poultry health inspector. She offers these tips for good isolation. A really ideal isolation or quarantine area would mean that, number one, that it is isolated. It's away from the rest of the flock that might be at that poultry owner's home, you know, full time. It also would be in a different um situated in a different area to where the poultry owner can go to that area specifically and not have to walk through their normal chicken yard. Because remember, things like Newcastle can spread through shoes. And in that area, it's kind of almost like a separate coop, um, your quarantine coop. And it will have food, it will have water, and it will have everything that that bird, that bird needs for the next two weeks. And all bird owners should report sick birds or unusual bird deaths through California Sick Bird Hotline at 866-922-BIRD. That's 866-922-2473. A federal district court ruling late last week brings agriculture closer to much-needed relief from the Waters of the U.S. rule. The court has effectively suspended the 2015 WOTUS rule in 11 more states, bringing the total to 24 states. Don Parrish, Senior Director of Regulatory Relations, at the American Farm Bureau Federation says disputes over jurisdiction have slowed appeals. Initially, the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals put a nationwide stay in place. But because the Supreme Court ruled that the proper courts to review this case is not the circuit court but the district court, we're having to relitigate these injunctions all over again. Parrish says the Trump administration has promised to repeal and replace the rule but has yet to move forward. We hope the administration moves quickly to withdraw the rule and put another one in place. They've already taken public comment on that. We think they're going to give the public another opportunity to comment on the 2015 rule, all the reasons it was bad, but we haven't seen that yet. AFBF is working hard to fight the WOTUS rule. Farm Bureau is one of many national organizations involved in a similar case in the Southern District of Texas that Parrish hopes will reissue a nationwide injunction against the rule. Because there's so many national trade associations that are involved in that litigation, we hope that the Texas court 
will ultimately get that litigation restarted and provide for a nationwide stay because the last thing we need is to have different states applying different rules. Michael Clements, Washington. U.S. rice producers brought in a 20% smaller crop last spring and have been getting prices averaging about $2 more than the year before. But USDA Outlook Board Chairman Seth Meyer told us that has had a bit of a backfire effect. U.S. rice producers have been having some struggles in terms of long grain exports in particular, uh, just not very price competitive in the world. Total U.S. rice exports for this current marketing year could be 94 million hundredweight, 19% less than last year. Now, going into this next season, we think we'll get some exports back, both long and medium short grain in 18-19, so we expect there to be a rebound in exports year over year. Meyer projecting about a 9.5% rebound in exports, but that's likely to come from a 14% bigger crop. So price is coming down a little bit to a $12.40 midpoint. Compared to 12.50 for this current season, that's the all rice price. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. Water Deeply reports that wastewater from the city of Modesto that was once dumped into a river is now in a pipeline, and it's helping farmers survive drought and flooding new wetlands for migratory birds in the Central Valley. The project is called the North Valley Regional Recycled Water Project. Only a year after starting construction at a cost of $90 million, the project is already delivering recycled urban wastewater to farms and wildlife refuges in California's Central Valley. The project, which began delivering water in December, provides farmers in the Del Puerto Water District with about 10,000 acre-feet of water. That's roughly a 25% increase over what they were allocated this year by the Federal Central Valley Project. And since the source is a steady stream of urban wastewater, it's an irrigation supply that won't change much from year to year. In comparison, allocations of Federal Central Valley Project water managed by the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation vary enormously depending on drought conditions, environmental issues, and other factors. Farmers markets. 20 years ago, they were rarely spotted. Nowadays, it almost seems like it's hard not to see one. They may start in a parking lot. They might start in a closed-off street. They may start in a public park. That was USDA architect Fidel Delgado, who says farmers markets are innovative places. It's really an incubator for businesses, and but especially agriculture businesses. Farmers markets are really a direct-to-consumer approach to farmers to get their wares and their produce out to the public. That was Ron Batcher, who is the main point of contact for a unique program run by USDA's Agricultural Marketing Service. With the Wholesale Market and Food Facility Design Program, that's what allows us to do the work with the farmers markets. He says the first step is to field inquiries, whether they come from private individuals or local governments, about how to start a farmer's market. We have to work with them from a fundamental level of, do you have any farmers in mind? Do you have any farmers that are interested in selling at your farmer's market? Sometimes it's no. And then it's really beginning to work with them on establishing their ideas, what they want to have at their farmer's market, what they see their farmer's market being in their area. Each project is different, but one service AMS provides is helping stakeholders with farmer's market design. So Elgin, Texas, they wanted to convert a old sausage factory into a business incubator and commercial kitchen. And we developed plans and 3D renderings that the stakeholder had taken and brought to funding sources, to banks and the local community to attain funding for the project itself. 
AMS keeps a national count of farmers markets that is made up of information that is voluntarily provided and self-reported. In 1994, there were less than 1,800 farmers markets around the country, but by 2017, the number had increased nearly fivefold to about 8,700. So does this mean that farmers markets are trendy? I wouldn't necessarily call it trendy. I see more of a movement in communities to become healthier, to create a community-based place where people can really gather and meet one another in the community. And for farmers, since the sales are direct to consumer, they get to keep more of the profits. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Sunflowers are a big part of California's agricultural community, and Sacramento surrounding counties, Yolo, Sutter, and Solano, are responsible for over $50 million worth each year of sunflowers and sunflower products. But there's something going on with the sunflowers. There's something wrong. Is it a disease? Is it an insect? Or is it something else? Agronomy advisor Sarah Light has been looking into it. She works for Sutter, Yuba, and Calusa counties, part of Cooperative Extension. And Sarah, this has been kind of a head-scratcher, isn't it? Definitely it has been. What did you find? What were some of the symptoms you were seeing in the local sunflower fields? We noticed that there seemed to be symptoms that developed only in the female lines. When hybrid seeds are produced, you plant, a fe- you plant female and male lines in the field um, to produce the optimum desirable seeds and characteristics of in the seed. And so there were some symptoms that developed only in the female lines um, that appeared to be related to heat stress um, because they occurred after extremely hot temperatures. We observed a few different disorders um, that seemed to be unrelated to each other but were kind of variety specific. And these weren't diseases and they weren't insects, correct? Yeah, so the reason that we think that it's related to an environmental stress, also known as an abiotic disorder, is because of the pattern in the field. Um, The symptoms were found pretty consistently throughout the female plants in the field, Uh, whereas a disease that was caused by a fungus or a bacteria or an insect, some kind of a pest like that, would be more randomly distributed in the field. Let's talk about some of the symptoms that you have uh, seen in the past. Now, one of them has the rather nasty name of foamy, foamy head rot. Yes. Yeah, so foamy head rot is an interesting one. It produces a copious kind of white frothy material that appears to exude from different parts of the plant, including the leaf petioles, which is what connects the leaf to the stem, as well as from parts of the main stem and the flower head. Um, and this kind of frothy material can cause yield and quality losses. Does it have anything to do with soil moisture? We didn't. We observed that there were some indication that some of these heat stress injuries were worse in places where there was more, where there were areas with sandy texture or or increased drainage. Um, So we really recommend trying to maintain good soil moisture if there's really high temperatures predicted so that sunflowers can have adequate water during hot periods. However, we can't say really if it's you know, this is sort of anecdotal evidence at this point. Um, it's really the heat stress that we noticed to be the consistent variable. I would think with something like foamy head rot that would produce some sort of uh, frothy sap that there might be a, a secondary infection that might attract some bugs. Uh, we did definitely observe that there were insects like stink bugs and ants that were attracted to that frothy kind of sap. Um, it's a little bit sticky, and so... So, yeah, that definitely did attract kind of secondary pests. Mm -hmm. I guess another injury that could occur after an excessive heat wave might be where flower buds would be damaged or or maybe 
partially opened or partially set seeds. Yeah. So last year we also did observe in a field after um, when we had that excessive heat wave in June, uh, where we had over 100 degrees, over 100 degrees for eight consecutive days. We did see that there were some, uh, again, only in the female line. Uh, where the flower buds turned brown and they didn't develop. They were stunted in their growth. Um, and it appeared that some of the sunflower heads that did open became scalded. Um, and so, again, in this example, really it's best as much as possible to be prepared with optimum irrigation before a heat wave. Uh, just monitor the weather and make sure that plants have adequate soil moisture before it gets really hot. Now, I believe one of the things you noted that there was some indication that heat injury to sunflowers was worse where there were gravel streaks in the fields. Yeah. So what that means is um, where there are gravel streaks, uh, there's there's increased drainage. And so um, gravel or sandier textures, uh, coarser texture soil holds on to water uh, less. And so water drains more easily out of the root zone. And so in a field that's being irrigated uniformly, if there are certain streaks in the field that can't, where the soil cannot retain the moisture in the root zone long, as long, those, those regions are more likely to be uh, water stressed because the water has moved past the root zone more rapidly. Now, some of the female sunflowers, I understand, set seed, but the seed didn't fill. There wasn't any kernel as if there was poor pollination. Uh, were the bees taking a day off from the heat? Yeah, you know, when it's really hot, uh, it's, bees don't really fly around as much. They, like like us, uh, you know, are not are not excited to be really moving around in, in really hot weather. So there, we do often see reduced honeybee activity when it's excessively hot, and we we speculate that that was part of the reason that there was poor seed fill and poor pollination because at that at that moment when um, pollination should have occurred, uh, bees were less active. Yeah, during uh, due to the inopportune heat during that time. Is there any way around that? Unfortunately, it's really an issue of timing. Uh, if we if we were able to control the weather, we would. Well, there, were, there would be a lot of different opportunities, I guess. But um, unfortunately, there isn't really there isn't really a way to substitute for bees, and there isn't really a way to control the weather. So we're just hoping that this year we have uh, optimum uh, conditions and favorable growing conditions and climate for hybrid seed production. One more abiotic disorder that you noted in the fields is where the sunflower heads did not drop after pollination. Mm-hmm. And anybody who's ever grown sunflowers know that at a certain point in their development, the heads just kind of droop over. But in this case, the heads weren't mm-hmm. drooping. What happens to a sunflower mm-hmm. head if it doesn't droop? What we found in the fields where the heads didn't droop, um, and again, this was only in the female lines, which was interesting, uh, there was higher seed predation by birds. So those, those uh, seed heads are filled with uh, nutrient-rich you know, seeds and more attractive to birds when they're not drooped down. But additionally, because the heads were exposed um, to more sun rays, we saw a consistent sunburn across a couple fields where the heads didn't droop and then they were just more susceptible to uh, the sun. And uh, they got burned kind of on the top quarter to a third of the head, um, which resulted in, again, in yield loss and, and some damage to the seeds. You got to watch out for those predicted heat waves. Be prepared with good yes. soil moisture and because uh, it, it could happen this year. We just don't know, do we? No, we don't know, uh, but we are, we're hoping that we'll have 
favorable environmental conditions this year for seed production because, as you mentioned, it is such an important crop here in our region of the Sacramento Valley. I would love to direct your listeners to our blog post about these disorders if they want more information. And the name of that blog report is Abiotic Disorders to Watch for in Hybrid Sunflower Seed Production. It's a publication from the folks at ucanr.edu. Just to do an internet search on that name, Abiotic Disorders to Watch for in Hybrid Sunflower Seed Production. Sarah Light is the agronomy advisor for Sutter, Yuba, and Calusa counties. Sarah, thanks for updating us on the sunflowers that are growing in our region. Thank you so much. Last month was hot, but just how hot was it? The official numbers are out from the National Centers for Environmental Information, and not surprisingly, it was the warmest May on record by a wide margin. USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey says the records began more than a century ago. 2018 coming in with a lower 48 average temperature of 65.4 degrees. That was 5.2 degrees above the 20th century mean, and it broke the 1934 record by approximately seven-tenths of a degree. May 2018 beat out other years to become the hottest May on record. So dropping to number two on the list, 1934, number three now 1936, both of those years being the Dust Bowl era. And what distinguished this year? As a whole, we actually saw above average rainfall during May 2018. This compares to the previous champions. For example, May 1934, driest May on record, May 1936, third driest May. Another interesting aspect? The hot May followed what for some states was a pretty cool April. We actually have five states, and the short list here is Wisconsin, Illinois, Missouri, Kansas, and Oklahoma that either experienced their first or second coldest April and then turned around and experienced their first or second warmest May on record. He says the unprecedented weather shift is especially dramatic because the cool weather caused initial planting delays. We're starting off the crop year in pretty good shape and in fact we have record tying corn and soybean conditions as we start the year. Soybeans tying the modern record of 2010 for the best condition right out of the box. Corn tying 2007 for the best condition on record since 1995. The heat is expected to continue as the country moves into summer which means rainfall is essential to maintain crop quality. With the higher temperatures, you're increasing evaporation, you're increasing evapotranspiration, so crop moisture demands are higher and you're increasing your losses from the soil. So it does put you on kind of tenuous ground agriculturally if you sustain this uh, near record to record setting warmth through the summer months. He says it's too early to raise alarms at this point, but still everything should be watched closely. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at KSTE.com.